If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 9. Or sorry, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is where I already started off with a mistake. That's not a good trajectory. Um, But uh, Romans chapter 6, we'll be starting off this lesson. And we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've been studying Romans, uh, trying to understand what Paul's main point is and what we can take from that for our lives. And, and I think there has been a tradition of reading Romans as primarily about the question of how do I go to heaven when I die? But I don't think that's actually Paul's primary point in Romans, although it will, you know, that salvation will be a part of the story, absolutely. But I think more than that, the point he's trying to make is what is it about our common salvation that brings us together into one family as Jew and Gentile, or in our context where we don't really divide people between Jew and Gentile, uh, as uh, any person of any walk of life, of any different uh, ethnicity or of any different uh, um, uh, cultural background or milieu, like what is it that can, about the gospel that can unite us together into one family? And he has talked about uniting through sin, and we all have a need of something uh, greater. We've talked about uniting through the faith of Christ and how that has brought us together. And then last week, if you remember, he ends up retelling the story of Adam and Eve, basically, through the person of Jesus. And how the world, when it was first created, you had the first man, Adam, and what did he do for the world? In essence, he brought sin and brought death into the world. But for us who are united in Christ, we have a new Adam. That means we have a new story as part of a whole new world of which we now live where our Adam, he didn't bring sin and death, but he brought life and he brought reconciliation to God. He brought forgiveness and sanctification and righteousness. So our world has a different story now because we have a different Adam. And what he'll actually do over the next few chapters is retell those old stories that have united Israel as universal stories that unite us. So we've already seen that they had an Adam. Well, we have a new Adam, a greater Adam, an Adam who is the first into eternal life. Remember, Jesus is the first one raised from the dead into eternal glory. Well, he's our, that means of eternal life, he's the first man, and he brought life into this world. Well, we get to share in that. That's something that we live in now in hope and in expectation of the day to come. Well, when you get to chapter 6, I think he's going to keep telling some of those stories. He's going to tell Israel's story again. Wow, how Israel was enslaved, but then through the mighty act of deliverance and salvation from God, they became free. They, they became uh, people who inherited the promised land. And that is the story of freedom from slavery and the salvation unto the life that God was giving to them. It's the story of Exodus. You know, as we read through our Bibles, when you get to the book of Exodus, you see that things have taken a rather negative turn for the family of Abraham and for his descendants. They have gone to Egypt and they went there in the days of Joseph seeking refuge and and protection and shelter, uh, seeking help from the famine. And the family moved there and the family grew and was blessed. They were faithful. They multiplied. And good things happened. But eventually, those good things that were happening were noticed. There was a Pharaoh who became uh, the leader of the land, and he didn't remember Joseph, and he didn't know much about this family. All he knew is that there were a bunch of foreigners living in his land, and that caused him to be nervous. He looked at them and he thought, you know what? Say there's a war one day. Who are they going to be loyal to? Are they going to be loyal to us, or are they going to perhaps join with our enemies? If they do that, we'll be undone. 
And so what are we going to do? Well, he could try to get their loyalty, uh, but that's not actually the route that he goes. He goes the route of enforcing slavery upon them and eventually trying to wipe them out through having their male children killed so they couldn't multiply anymore. So he ends up turning into this cruel taskmaster who enslaves and kills. He brings slavery and death to the people of God. And when God sees the people who he has called and the people he loves being uh, forced to suffer slavery and death, then God acts on their behalf. The ten plagues are are illustrations of God acting on their behalf. Them crossing through the Red Sea on dry land to find salvation on the other side while the, 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 the armies of Pharaoh are annihilated. That is God in power acting on their behalf. The story of the Exodus is the story of God's graceful deliverance for his people. Because when you think about that story, what had Israel done? What had Israel done? to deserve God's deliverance. Um, Had they obeyed the law of Moses? No, that actually comes later in the story. They were not obedient to the law of Moses. Uh, they, they were actually idolatrous. Uh, when you, you can, there's a number of passages you can read to find out that they weren't even solely committed to the worship of Yahweh. Uh, they hadn't been obedient to Torah. They hadn't earned anything. Instead, what happened was God saw their need and he acted in love on their behalf. And he saved them from slavery, and he gave them freedom, and he gave them hope, and he gave them life. He rescued their children. He rescued their, all of them. And so as you read the Exodus story, Israel, from that point forward, when they consider who their God is, he's the God who saves When God gives them the Ten Commandments, when God begins to lay out his law for their lives, you know how he introduces it? He introduces it by reminding them that he's the God who delivered them from slavery, that he is the God of the Exodus. He's the God of their salvation. And that's such an important foundational understanding for us to have of God. Before we've done anything, God acted on our behalf for our salvation through his grace to bring us freedom from slavery and life instead of death. You know, that's actually the whole story of the gospel. One thing that's fascinating as you read through the Bible is you see how often the stories that you're familiar with get retold in new ways with new characters in a new setting, but ultimately it's the same story. For example, Jesus' death and resurrection, that's a, that's a story of Exodus retold. Uh, what I mean by that is you, you even see this building up in the Gospels as you read the life of Jesus. He's doing all sorts of Moses-type things to connect himself with the leader who brings freedom to his people. He also does things that connect him to the God of Israel who brought freedom to his people. But even explicitly, uh, for example, if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, there's this incredible scene. We call it the, the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he starts to glow, basically. Uh, he turns white and shiny. Um, now, that's interesting because Moses used to go up on a mountain and his face would glow and turn white and shiny. Only on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's not just Jesus' face, it's all of him. It's like an even more glorious glow that's taking place. It's a strange scene. But while he's on that mountain glowing, Moses is there with him and so is Elijah. And so that, that mountain is in the book of Exodus, but it's also there in the life of Jesus. That glowing is in the book of Exodus, but it's also there in the life of Jesus. Moses is there in the book of Exodus, but it's also there in the life of Jesus. And then a cloud forms over them. 
in that cloud, which is what Moses was following in the book of Exodus, appears again in the life of Jesus. And then a voice comes from the cloud, and it terrifies the disciples who are there seeing it, just like happened in the days of Moses. Like with Moses, there's a voice that comes from the cloud, and it terrifies the people, and they say, hey, Moses, you go talk to the cloud. We don't want to hear it anymore because we think we'll die if we hear it again. It's a terrifying voice. Well, the same thing happens in the days of Jesus. In that cloud tells the people... And it, it, it utters this declaration that Jesus is his beloved son. Listen to him. So instead of perhaps listening to Moses, who had been the leader, now the idea is to listen to his son, listen to Christ. But one of the things that's truly fascinating about that in the Gospel of Luke is you have all of the Exodus uh, themes reappearing. You have the cloud, you have the mountain, you have the glowing, you have Moses. You have like all of that stuff you know, combined together. But in Luke, it tells you what they were talking about. Like, what were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about? And it says that they were discussing his departure, Jesus' departure, which would soon take place in Jerusalem. Now, do you know what the word departure is in Greek? I know I've said this before, so some of you might know. Uh, but it is the Greek word exodus. It's the name of the second book of the Bible. Moses led the exodus out of Egypt, and Jesus is leading another exodus. So what that means is as you're reading the exodus story, you're reading a precursor to the story of Jesus going to Jerusalem and dying on the cross. These stories are told, and they share a lot of the same ideas. As a matter of fact, you may remember, what feast day? Or what a celebration in Israel does Jesus choose to, uh, to go to Jerusalem for? When he, when he ultimately suffers on the cross. It's Passover. Now, there are a number of feast days perhaps he could have chosen. Uh, you know, he, I guess he didn't, even, he didn't even have to choose a feast day, but he did, he, and he chose specifically Passover. Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that would have been one that makes sense because Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the day that the sins of the people of Israel are atoned for. And Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he atones for our sins. So it's like that would have made tons of sense. But instead... He goes on Passover. What is Passover the celebration of? Exodus. Passover was initiated when Israel uh, escaped Egypt, when God passed over their houses and, and brought salvation to their families. And then they fled from Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and they had life on the other side. Jesus wants that story firmly fixed in our minds when we read about his death and resurrection. Because just like Israel was going through slavery and death in Egypt, Jesus experienced death on the cross. And just like Israel passed through the Red Sea and they were covered with the waters, so Jesus was buried in a tomb and was covered by darkness and death. But then just as Israel emerged victorious on the other side, so Jesus emerged from the tomb victorious over death itself. And resurrection becomes the story of our hope. Resurrection after death becomes our exodus moment. And you ask the question, what did Israel do to earn the exodus? Nothing. What did we do to earn Jesus' incarnation and his death on the cross and his resurrection? Did God look at my life and say, you know what? He's a swell fella. He deserves this. And then send Jesus? No, he, Jesus came long before I lived, and just a brief look at my life will make the point rather clear that I didn't earn any of that. I've done nothing that would indicate that God owes me that sort of gift. 
It is a complete act of grace on behalf of God, seeing his people in need and yet reaching out to be their savior and deliverer. The story of Exodus is retold in the story of Jesus. Salvation on the other side of the river or the other side of the sea is seen in the resurrection of Jesus coming out of the tomb. And these ideas actually reappear in the letters of Paul where Jesus is specifically called our Passover or um, in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul will explicitly make the point that just like we are baptized into Christ when we are baptized in water, so Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and in Moses. That was them leaving slavery behind, just like our baptism is leaving our slavery behind. So when you get to Romans 6, you have to have these stories, the story of Exodus and the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus in your mind, because he's going to combine them to be part of our story. He's going to remind us of something that if you're a Christian, you have gone through. And what you did in that moment connects you to the story of the Exodus and even more, and even more vividly to the story of Jesus, where you have experienced that same thing in your own life. You have been a slave. You have been buried. You have been freed. And you have been given life. It's like the hopelessness of Exodus and the hopelessness of the cross is undone by the freedom and the life that's found on the other side. That's the story of your baptism. That's the story that Paul wants the Roman church to remember because they are Christians and that means they've all been baptized. Like Romans 6 isn't explicitly a call to be baptized. Romans 6 is a reminder of what happened when you were baptized. And what's fascinating about that is the church in Rome, as we've been discussing, you have Jew and you have Gentile. And they have different histories, and they have different perspectives on a lot of things, and they have uh, different understandings of their walk with God. And yet they've all gone through this same story together. Whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, if you've been baptized, you have shared in the same story. Baptism is something that unifies us together. There's, it's actually fascinating. You can read through 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 um, and uh, Galatians chapter 3. And in each of those passages, there's going to be references to baptism. And one thing that will happen after Paul mentions baptism in each of those places is he'll give a list of what baptism has done. And he'll talk about how what baptism has done is it's took people who were otherwise separated by the, the ways of the world and by their, their current situation or status in life and how they've been brought together to become one in Christ. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are slave or free, whether you are male or female, all have become one in Christ because we all now have the same story. And the story is the story of Jesus as our savior who brought us from slavery to eternal life. That's Romans 6. Romans 6 is reminding you of what happened in that moment and then calling you to live appropriately into that moment. So, for example, Romans 6 begins, if you have your Bibles open there, with a question. And it's a question that stems from a potential misunderstanding of what Paul has been saying in the first five chapters. Because Paul has said, basically, the law reminded us and, and made known to us and actually brought about sinfulness. Because the more law you have, the more opportunity there is for sin. So law, in essence, increased sin. And you think, well, that's not a good thing. But what resulted from that is it demonstrated the overwhelming grace of God. Because no matter how much sin you have, God's grace is greater. 
And so law increased sin to be sure, but all that did was increase the glories of the grace of God. So it actually produced something good. And so for people who maybe don't like Paul or people who are trying to find fault with Paul, they could say, okay, Paul, that makes a ton of sense. Sin brings grace, right? So that means sin is a good thing. I should just sin, right, Paul? That's what you're saying, isn't it? If I, the more I sin, the more grace I get, then let's just bring on the sin. How about that? Paul, you don't make no sense. And so that's kind of what Paul is gearing up to say, okay, don't go that direction. Uh, he starts off Romans 6 by asking the question, what shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? He, I think he's, he's heading off his potential detractors. And he's going to answer the question that might appear in your mind if you're, uh, if, if you're reading him carefully. And he says, so should we sin because grace will increase? Then in verse 2, my translation says, may it never be. Some of your translations may say something like, God forbid. Um, the way you translate that is just like the strongest possible way you can say no that's what it means. Uh, it, is, it is an emphatic, absolutely not under any conditions, no. Um, and so that's obviously not what he's calling us to do. To do that would be to completely undermine the story that you've undergone. It's, it's, it would be like in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt after being freed. He said, that, like, that's, that's what they would be trying to do, to go back to that life of sin. You've been freed from sin, so don't try to go back to it. Don't enslave yourself again. Uh, he'll, he'll actually, in verse 15, he'll ask another similar question and then answer it the same way. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, absolutely not. Paul is not calling us to a life of sin, and if you think that grace lessens the, the, the pain of sin, or grace makes sin not that big of a deal, that's a complete misunderstanding of grace. As a matter of fact, I think a proper understanding of grace would cause us to detest sin all the more, because grace, it reminds us the depths of the love of God and how he was willing to do whatever it took, even though completely undeserved. He sent his most precious gift, the darling of heaven, as we sang earlier, to, to be the, the price for our sin. Imagine receiving that gift and then just desecrating it or smearing I mean, that's what sin would do. So the reason that we are transformed by God's grace isn't because we think, oh, okay, so sin doesn't really matter because grace is bigger than it. It's because we think, God gave us grace, and I'm so overwhelmingly thankful and undeserving that I'm going to spend the rest of my life in love, living for the one who gave everything he could for me. That's what grace should motivate us to do. And that's the story of baptism. That's the story of, of us being freed from slavery and being given life on the other side. That's why Paul in Romans 6 will connect these ideas of slavery and freedom and the cross and the resurrection to baptism. If you keep reading in verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death, so that therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Like imagine at the moment of baptism where you're standing there in the water 
and then you are brought down underneath, and then you're brought up on the other side. You are recapitulating or retelling the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, where you are now entering into that story. And you have shared in that experience with Christ. And that's why Paul can say things like the, another song that we sang, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives within me. That's baptism language. That's the language of, of uniting with him in death, being buried with him. He was buried in the tomb and we are buried in the water. But then you come out to life on the other side, resurrected life. And again, that's why Paul can say things like, we've been raised up with Christ. And I can say, I've, I've been raised up. How have I been raised up? I haven't been resurrected yet. Well, you've been raised up if you've been baptized. Because the picture of baptism is a burial and a resurrection. It's the picture of being on this side of the water, going through the Red Sea, and coming out freed on the other side. It's that picture of escape from slavery. It's the picture of uniting with Christ. So when you get to, for example... Verse 14 of chapter 6. This is where he really picks up on the Exodus freedom from slavery language. He says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So, so the fact that we have been given grace to be freed from sin means that we should not go back to sin being our master. One of the things that's fascinating about this passage is when I think of sin— First and foremost, I think of something that I do. Like sin is something that I commit. It is a transgression. But the way Paul describes sin in Romans 6, and this happens, and this is true, is that while we might think of sin as something we do, and I think that's accurate and appropriate, sin is also something that can be personified as like a master or a ruler or a slave owner that captures us and makes it seem absolutely unescapable. Sin can entangle you in its web so that you, no matter how much you struggle, cannot get out and you're in absolute need of something else. And Jesus is the one who comes to meet that need. You cannot, like the Israelites, I don't think could have just overthrown Egypt and freed themselves. They needed God to do it. And sin has that same ensnaring captivity for us, uh, or the same ensnaring capability. It can ensnare us so that we cannot free ourselves, and we need someone to come and be our deliverer. That's the story of Jesus. That's what he has done for us. And so, when you get to verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? And he's saying you have a choice, actually. This is, this, is, this is something that we should all know. You have a choice as to who you're going to be a slave to. You can be a slave to sin and have sin rule over you. But he says the problem with that, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death. That's the way of the first Adam. That's the way of going back to Egypt. That's the way of, of what brought Jesus to the cross. Or of obedience resulting in righteousness. That's the new Adam. That's the exodus out of Egyptian slavery. That's the resurrection itself. And the idea is, which of these two ways of life are you going to serve? If you're a Christian, verse 17, thanks be to God. But thanks be to God that though you were the slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You obeyed the teaching of Christ. You've been baptized into Christ so that you have 
retold the story of Christ in your own life and you have shared in that story now so that you come out on the other side freed from slavery to sin and now you're a slave to righteousness, which leads to life itself. That's life in the new Adam. That's life on this side of the Exodus. That's life on this side of the resurrection. Paul is combining all of these together because this freedom that we have is something that if you're a Christian, we have all shared in together. Doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are, baptism is something that unites you. It doesn't matter how prominent in society you are or how lowly your status is, you are one when you are baptized together. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or free, they go through the same story of baptism. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past, whether you've been a, uh, someone who was raised as a churchgoer or you were someone who was raised in the most uh, ungodly environment, you become one when you're baptized. And none of that stuff defines you anymore. You're defined by Christ himself. That's the story of Exodus in our own lives. That's the story of the death and resurrection in our own lives. That's the story of what we should remember when we remember our baptism. So new life in Christ, I think is what Romans 6 is really all about. Because the wages of sin is death. Sin earns you death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have this gift of life. And that's what we have and that's what we find in Christ. So with that in mind, what is it? What does it mean to live this new unified life? What have we all done that unites us together? Well, for one thing, we have confessed and believed that Jesus is Lord and King. That's one of the things I love about uh, when we baptize people, that confession you take right beforehand. That is something where we're all making the same declaration with our voice to commit our lives to Jesus as God's son, which is kingly language. Uh, it's a way of saying that I'm giving myself in obedience to him from this point forward. We declare the kingship of Jesus, and that is something that we all share with one another. No matter what nation you live in, no matter who your government is, we actually have one king who rules above them all, and we have committed ourselves to the kingship of Jesus. That unites the whole world in Christ into one family and one kingdom. But not only that, if you're going to make that declaration, you have to actually live as though that's true. Like declaring Christ as being king is, is a wonderful thing. But if it stops at words, then ultimately it's, it's a lie. If you're going to declare Christ as king, you then have to change your life to live as though Christ is king. You become slaves of obedience, is the language of Romans 6. Obedience is a part of this thing. Changing your life into conformity with the will of King Jesus is an absolute part of this thing. You have to live differently than you did beforehand. Otherwise, that old man who was crucified, he's just coming right back. Egypt is taking back over. Sin is reigning over you again. You have to live a transformed life, and you are helped along the way with the power of God's Spirit, with the community of the church, with Scripture. God has given us many ways to help us live in this transformed life, but obedience and repentance is absolutely a part of this. And then you go through baptism. That is something where we are all dead in our sins, and what do you do with dead people? You bury them. Jesus was buried. We're called to be buried. We're buried with Christ in baptism so that we can be raised unto new life, eternal life, 
glorious life and abundant life. Eternal life now and eternal life in the age to come. That is what is promised to us through Jesus. And this right here is something that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or whoever you are, this is the story that you've shared in in Jesus. This is our story with a new Adam. This is creation retold in the life of the believer. So as we draw our lesson to a close, I want to challenge us. Number one, this is what Paul is doing. He is not calling for them to be baptized per se, because they're already baptized. They're Christians. He is reminding them of what it means that you've entered into that story. And he, so remember your baptism. Remember how it unites you with Christ and how it unites you with one another. And when you look across this room and you see a brother or a sister, remember, you're, you're living the same story, the story of Christ himself. Your story of death and resurrection, the story of freedom from slavery. And share in that story. Rejoice in that story. Sing songs about that story when you gather together with one another. Remember your baptism and the unity that it brings upon you. But then also, if you are not a Christian, if anyone in here has never been baptized, if you believe that Jesus is Lord in Christ, don't wait any longer. Uh, I'm so excited about going over to the building next week. Uh, I, I think that that's going to be a wonderful thing. And seriously, I'm going to just throw in an additional challenge real quick that's not written. Uh, come next week. Prioritize being here for worship and invite as many people as you can. Invite your family, invite your neighbors. We want it to be a wonderful day of celebration next week. Uh, you know, as we... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my Exodus narrative. As we leave this building and go to the other, uh, maybe that's a little bit dramatic, but, uh, but here's, the, as we do that, it, seriously, it, it looks beautiful over there. It is safer than it was. It's more practical than it was. It's more beautiful than it was. So it's going to be a wonderful day. I'm excited about it, and I'm thankful for all the work that went into it. But I say all of that because you might think, well, the baptistry is way over there. Well, we can walk over there today if anyone needs you. We don't have to wait until next week. If you believe that Jesus is Lord in Christ, declare it. Confess it to your family that you have made that, uh, that commitment to live for him and then have your sins washed away in baptism. Live a new life in Christ. Be buried, but then be raised right after it to live a new kind of life in Christ, to live a transformed life, a life of obedience to the one true king of the world. In Romans, that is how the church was united together. And Paul wants us to remember that, and he also wants us to do that. So if we can help you make that commitment today, please let it be known. You can talk to one of our elders in the back, or you can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.